0: We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Spy Has Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott.
2: And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And I should try to get a run in. That's
1: like my outro line. You've stolen it already. Thanks for that, Cam.
2: You're welcome. Mm-hmm.
1: You're welcome. <laughs> well, joining us uh, in the League of Morons this week, <laughs> we have a very, very special guest, Mr. Matt Glasby. He's a writer for Total Film and the Radio Times and the author of quite a few books, but namely Brit Pop Cinema, From Train Spotting to This Is England, and The Book of Horror, The Anatomy of Fear in Film. Hello, Matt. And welcome to the show.
0: Hello. Thanks for having me.
1: Quite the intro here, so we, we we've set the table well. You've got a lot of credentials, so hopefully we live up to this.
0: Well, a very, a very, very special guest. I, yeah, I'm honoured. So. Yeah.
1: Well, it, I suppose before we talk about the film, we need to get to know our guest a little bit. So you know, you you've you've written for Total Film, Radio Times. Where did your interest in in films spring from?
0: Wow, that's a toughie. I feel like it's just always been there, and I feel like also for. People, I don't want to speak, but people of our our generation of a certain age, like in the 80s, film was the magic. It might be different now with streaming or whatever, but, you know, like VHS, all those things, all those great big blockbusters. So, you know, show me an 80s nerd and I will show you a film lover. And yeah, this is what they look like 30 years later, 40 years later. We
1: all have podcasts now. That's basically it. Yeah,
0: that's it um
1: and well maybe we'll get to your spy credentials in a little bit before we talk about the film but you know you've before that you've also got your books out and i want to talk about that a little bit too because they're also quite contrasting there's one about brit pop cinema which is a concept i only sort of sprung across when i i found your book but actually it makes complete sense as a genre because that really was a time and place in, in british cinema
0: yeah, I mean, thank you. That it's it's nice to have coined coined a phrase, even if you and I are the only people that use it. Um, but uh, yeah, so Brit pop cinema was about the sort of explosion of optimistic, upbeat British cinema of the '90s, and and British film suddenly becoming a thing that wasn't just. Uh, you know Ken Loach and Mike Lee it wasn't just kitchen sink actually it was kind of cinematic and cool that sort of Danny Boyle thing um, and yeah it, I, I look back at those films I lived through those films and looking back at them it struck me that we'd hit a real moment and there was lots and lots and lots of books about Britpop music and, and how that changed mm-hmm. uh, you know um, Britain in the 90s no books about the films so I decided that it would be my duty to uh, to change that and thus Britpop cinema
1: we too have a similar calling when it comes to spy films. <laughs> but speaking of, I mean, I I um, haven't gone through the list of films. But is there a spy film in the the Brit
0: pop genre? Uh, no, but the closest is going to be your Johnny Englishes. <laughs> yes, those count those yeah. totally count yeah. as spy yeah. films. Yeah, yeah, they're spy films. And then from my point of view, they were sort of um, upbeat optimistic-seeming, you know, uh, cinematic as opposed to sort of drudgery TV-based mm-hmm. British films that were competing on a world stage. They're not, I'll be honest, they're not my favourite films, but yeah, you could argue that, that they're, they're certainly um, worth the mentioned in the book. I, I don't do chapters on them.
2: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sorry to say. Uh, I figured that would be like the essential <laughs> skeleton of the book would be like the emergence of Johnny English.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's the, Yeah, that's the subtitle. Brit Britpop Cinema, The Emergence of Johnny English. <laughs> sequel yeah you'll do a follow-up
1: that's like the brit pop cinema strikes again or something like that is that
0: yeah it, it was put to me that, that to, on a world stage the brit pop cinema as a book concept was niche but were i to write the johnny english story i fear that that might be even even a few steps further along well, we
1: have to write that story at some point so we will be uh you guys are the experts well that's a that's a that's a credit i don't think i deserve but then <laughs> I think, again, your other genre that you focused on, which is horror, which I think is a really Cam's uh, mm. thing here. I, I can't do horror films myself. I, I ran out of The Mummy. <laughs> oh, wow. I wish that was a joke. I genuinely ran out of The Mummy. When he came out of that sarcophagus, I was out of that cinema. I left my nan sitting there. She was very confused.
2: <laughs> and you speak about the old universal <laughs> horror one from the 30s, right? Of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Right. Oh yeah, I was just trying to work out what part of Brendan Fraser you didn't like, but um, <laughs>
1: well, now he brought me back in. It's a, <laughs> a lifelong love for Brendan Fraser, but um,
0: so Cam, you're a massive horror fan.
2: I really am a yeah. I really enjoy horror. I watch a lot of it. Um, I'm not someone who, if you ask me, what my sort of specialties in terms of film knowledge are, I wouldn't say horrors at the top, but it's definitely a genre I tend to watch a lot of and I think part of that is because a lot of them are 90 minutes (laughs) and I do like a good 90 minute movie yeah well I was just curious with horror I think every person who's into horror comes from a from a different angle some people are really into sort of um you know the supernatural elements some are into slasher films what drew you into horror
0: well what drew me into horror was um I think it was probably slasher films in the in the early days but more than that it's just uh, there's a lot of you know there's a huge and huge and, and even bigger increasing uh, following for horror. And I feel that, like, horror fans love horror. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's a way of life. It's not just, oh, you know, I quite like rom-coms. So I just feel like I'm a lifer. And I, I think anyone that sort of... It sounds like you are too. Um, and, yeah, we'll watch absolutely any old crap in 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 the service of, of a scare and sometimes multiple times you know there's a real obsessiveness about it what inspired the book is that I love um I love being scared and I felt that most horror books which I absolutely sort of hoover up concentrate on the importance of the film or you know uh like a great sort of uh uh, landmarks in the genre Whereas actually the thing that I find myself talking about the most is whether something scary or not so I wanted to do with the book of horror is just collate the scariest films ever they didn't have to be good they didn't have to be clever they didn't have to make money they didn't have to anything they just had to be horror films that were available uh, like you guys are doing uh, and scary and then to try and work out in what ways each one was scaring us
2: and so what were some of the ones that you listed as being the scariest because scariest is so subjective
0: It is so subjective. Well, this is why I had a system called Scare tactics to try and work out how each one is working on us. And the the book has 34 main chapters of like, I guess, the scariest ever. And then for each one of those, there's three sort of follow-up films, which are kind of not necessarily less scary, just a bit more obscure. And the main chapters run from everything, you know, you're going to, obviously, you're going to have like The Exorcist and The Shining through there, right up to really recent stuff like this uh, Argentine film called Terrified from a couple of years ago, which is absolutely shit scary and lake bungo from australia from from 10 years ago or so which is sort of a bit more on the obscure level horror fans will know these but you know a little bit more obscure the idea was that everything had an equal footing um because it's based on how scary it is not how important it is
2: what i always find fascinating about horror is that horror fans will watch as you said like just anything including just like endless bad sequels, anything just to find that pure experience of those terrifying moments. Yeah. So it's such an interesting genre in that the majority of horror is pretty bad, I guess. But it's like those special gems are why people are so
0: compelled to keep digging in and they do emerge. Definitely. And one of the things that that's the book tracks is, is it's, and as it's, it says in the introduction is that actually only horror and comedy, they're not they're not genres on subject, they're genres on reaction. So a comedy is a comedy because it makes you laugh. A horror film is a horror film because it makes you scared. Whereas your spy films are spy films because they contain certain story elements. Mm-hmm. And so actually, um, that's the reason. one of the reasons that yeah we go through, through all this crap is to get that little sort of, it's not, If I don't know if it's a dopamine hit, but to get that little hit of being scared. And actually, there's loads of bad films in the book that have a few really scary moments. So they've earned their place. Just as a bad comedy might have a really brilliant sequence in it.
1: When I hear the word tradecraft mentioned in the film, I just get like a little little shiver down the spine.
0: <laughs> it's perfect.
1: Um, well, I suppose we'll come back to the book in a bit, but I did want to ask one more question about uh, the films that you've discovered on your journey in, in putting this book together. Is there a film that you came across that you weren't too familiar with before, but then when you really had to go back and appreci- you know, dig into the film that you gained a new appreciation with?
0: Yeah, there were, there were lots. So like I say, there's some, you know, obvious ones that you go back over. And and a horror fan is, is, I was researching this book my whole life, you know, for fun and just just seeking out those dark corners. But then it got really serious. So I had sort of six, eight months of watching five or six horror movies a day, which, newsflash flash, is really, really terrible for you. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but then, yeah, some of the stuff I found that I found, I found some things I couldn't uh that were sort of on YouTube that I couldn't establish if there were films or T V or just someone's, you know, personal rantings. I found like Icelandic films and uh Venezuelan films that, you know, clearly haven't got that good a, a release anywhere. And yeah, those things You know, it was a real uh, turning up, turning up gems because you're you're wading through this stuff. As we say, some of it's bad. And then you hit upon something amazing. Like, I've never heard of this before. And not just I've never heard of this while researching. I've never heard of this in the 40 years beforehand when I just wanted to watch these films. So, yeah, hopefully there's some really, really deep dive stuff on there. Um, Loads of horror fans will be like, scene, 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 scene. But, you know, what are you going to do? Hey, there's always
1: surprises out there. We found some crackers in our searches, and we, we we're not even in the first 100 yet. So, uh, yeah, count me a Condor Man fan. <laughs> Condor
2: Man, and also like I just think <laughs> of with horror, even something that could be mainstream released, like will be ignored, and you go like, hey, there's a sequence in this that's unbelievable. I always think of um, the Strangers, Prey at Night, <gasps> a movie I saw in theaters. That sequence in the pool is just unbelievable filmmaking. And, you know, I think it got a sea of one and two star reviews and was just kind of, you know, disappeared from theaters. But moments like that are why the genre can be so exciting.
0: Definitely. That film's good. The guy that made it, British director, his British films are really good as well. He's really talented. Um, Johannes Roberts. And he made a film called F about uh, hoodies attacking a school. It was just a brilliant British slasher of which there were very, very few. Um, so yeah, yeah. There's loads. There's loads out that I keep looking, and I keep on coming across things that I think oh, I didn't even hear of this while I was researching. Oh my god! You know, if there's a sequel, that's going in. Well,
1: I think we need to check your spy credentials before we get to the film in question. Um, we've
0: discussed Britpop, we've discussed horror, but spy films. What are you into? What am I into? I was thinking about this earlier because I knew you were going to ask, and I worry that I am a poor candidate for uh, for this podcast. Um, I grew up. I don't know what age you guys are, but I grew up on on uh, bad Roger Moore Bond films, uh, you know, in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was my introduction to all this stuff. And then I worked at a men's magazine for many years, where every single issue it felt like there was <laughs> how to be like Bond. <laughs> so I kind of got a bit sick of that. And and then in the mid-noughties, it was in mid-noughties, early noughties, the Bond stuff came mm-hmm. out and your uh, casino royals and everything got a little bit grittier as you'll see from the horror stuff i have a sort of tendency towards the darkness so that born stuff where it's really horrible and people are going to get killed and it's not glamorous i think that's the stuff that i like the most
1: so what you're saying is you're not a fan of condor man <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, I haven't. I remember I remember the name from being a kid, yeah. but I haven't seen that, I don't think.
1: It's 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 one of the craziest Disney films you'll come across in the 80s, and they did some crazy stuff in the 80s. But um,
0: no, I, I, we've had... Is it Some Mothers Do Have Him? Is it that guy from Some Mothers Do Have Him? It's it's the chap.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. That's him. That's him. Um, that's Phantom the... of the Opera <laughs> okay. guy. I can't remember Michael his name. Crawford. Off yeah. Michael Crawford. Thank you. Yes. That's yeah. him. Yeah. He plays a spy who also can fly. It's a great little rhyme. <laughs> he's he's the condor man it's on the list there you go but um okay so you were into more of the the gritty the the borns of the world Mm. and i mean that genre has definitely evolved from that point Uh, i think the born identity was kind of the watershed moment for that but yeah you've gone on to do all kinds of different things like the taken films have span off in their own way of doing that sort of stuff um all kinds of things but it's i think casino royale was probably the benchmark for that
0: yeah Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a masterpiece. I love that film.
1: And if you were to, I mean, you said you grew up on the Roger Moores of it all.
0: Is there one you could point to as your favorite? My favorite Bond? I mean, it probably grew up on the Daltons. So, I mean, yeah, that was a bleak era. My favorite Bond film. Can I have Casino Royale or does that that not count? Oh, you can have that one for sure. I mean, I think that is pretty much hands down the best that's been made in my lifetime. So, yeah, I'm going to go with Casino Royale. It tends
1: to get mentioned as, as, as many people's number one, so that, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Um, well, I think the next question is to you, Cam. What on earth are we talking about this week?
2: We are tackling the 2008 Coen Brothers film Burn After Reading. Now, I know you aren't a
1: big fan of comedies because you have no sense of humor.
2: That's right. Very serious.
1: So, um, yeah, you're very serious man. So I'm very interested to know... A bit about this film now. For me, firstly, I actually did watch this film in the past. Uh, usually, I have never seen the film. Almost every week, I have never seen it. So it was actually nice to have seen it and enjoyed it at one point in time. But uh, to you, Matt, do you remember catching this in the theaters when it came out?
0: You know, there was a gap in my cohen Brothers uh, watch uh, watch list about when they got wacky till about when they started w- winning Oscars. And I realized this is just after No Country for Old Men, but in my head, this was in their wacky period. (laughs) And so I hadn't seen it. So I was really happy. I watched it with my wife for this podcast. Mm -hmm. And yeah, really happy to fill in that gap because obviously they're, you know, they're huge uh, filmmakers. And even when they're not firing on all cylinders, it's still really worth a watch.
1: See, I'm I was i I'm not a guy who's seen many films and many directors or anything like that. So I, I know the, who the Coen brothers are. I, I've seen a few of their films. But I was never able to chart it that way. So I'd be interested to talk about that in a little bit, about that sort of divergence. Then they go in the sort of comedy route. And we'll get to that. But Cam, what about you? You seem like the sort of guy that might have seen it.
2: Yeah, I saw it in theaters. And I just want to note, you referred to me as a serious man. Was that a Coen brothers joke? Because if it was, <laughs> home run, Scott. I mean... Is it
1: better if I say I have no idea what you're talking about?
2: That's even better. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So for me, I remember the period after Fargo where that movie was massively acclaimed, you know, several Oscar nominations, Best Actress win, and then they followed up with Big Lebowski, and it was met with a lot of lukewarm reviews and people kind of being like, well, it's okay. Okay. And I remember seeing it on home video and really, really loving it and kind of being shocked that it didn't get more of a, you know, worthy reception when it came out. And obviously, that's the one that went on to have a huge cult following and is now regarded as one of their best. And I had that reaction that many critics had to Big Lebowski to Burn After Reading, where I had absolutely loved No Country for Old Men. And then I went the following year and watched Burn After Reading and I walked out pretty unhappy. I actually dug up my review and it was like, oh, oh, this is like, I, whatever kind of mood I was in when I watched it in 2008, it was very clear that I did not like respond to what that movie was offering. And I think I have a bit of a caveat, which is that, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, Roger Ebert's criticism. And he was big enough to later in life be like, hey, I had it wrong with The Godfather Part 2. I had it wrong with The Shining. And I clearly, I think, had it wrong with Burn After Reading. A lot of what I was angry about that first time are things the movies very intentionally trying to do. So it was just interesting watching it the other night and going like, oh, man. I had to even dig up the review because I'm like, my memories do not match the experience I'm having. So, yeah. I mean, you've teased it now. Do we get to hear this review in a bit? (laughs) <laughs> um no <laughs> i don't <laughs> the, you know what i was very proud digging up a clip of my um taken two review which i thought was really clever and funny this one mm. just made me cringe <laughs> uh, now i really want to hear it.
1: <laughs> oh what a shame i'll see if i can convince you by the end of the episode to read it out to us
2: you know what i'll pull it up um and uh i can when we dig into the uh thoughts now i will uh bring that up but uh, okay yeah.
1: Okay. Well, I think before we get into how the Cohen brothers got to this film, let's read out the letterbox.com synopsis for those who haven't actually seen the film. Burn after reading. Intelligence is relative. When a disc containing memoirs of a former CIA analyst falls into the hands of gym employees Linda and Chad, they see a chance to make enough money for Linda to have life changing cosmetic surgery, predictably. Events whirl out of control for the duo and those in their orbit.
2: Sure. Sure. I mean, yeah. summing up a Coen Brothers movie is always kind of pointless. Even they themselves, whenever you ask them, you know, on press tours, like what their movies are about, they give kind of nonsensical answers. Uh, the, the film, Cam, I think I read a review today.
1: Um, I can't remember who it was from, actually, unfortunately. But he said, like, there's no way I can sum up the plot. So I'm just going to not bother talking about it. So I, I can see, I can appreciate them trying to bring it down to one paragraph. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cam, you spoke about all these films they did before that were, you know, highly regarded. And then how did we end up with a spy comedy?
2: Well, they said they made a spy comedy or a spy film because, I don't know, never done one before. Why not? (laughs) So. That's
1: some uh, some energy right there. I appreciate them just like, hey, all right, sure. Let's try it.
2: Well, has... Has anyone here, um, I would imagine that Matt has, um, read or listened to a Coen Brothers interview on their press tour or to one of their film commentaries on the DVDs?
0: No. No, afraid not.
2: Okay. It's a lot of just monosyllabic, like, yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. There you have it. That on sort their of commentary thing. tracks. Uh-huh. Long pauses, like, oh, yeah, that was that was kind of fun. Things like that. Oh. Like, yeah, they don't tend to like to talk about their work a lot. So um, the insight they give is usually either very vague or intentionally misleading because they're just not that interested in those conversations. Well, that's what we're here for. That's right. That's right. So this was, as I said, the follow-up to No Country for Old Men, which had won four Oscars for Best Picture, Directing, Writing Adapted Screenplay, and then Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem. And um, they'd done a little short film in between for the anniversary of the Cannes Film Festival, but this was their major film follow-up. And also marked the first original screenplay they'd written since 2001's The Man Who Wasn't There. Otherwise, they'd been adapting material since then. Although some of these adaptations are very loose, and I would say it's a question of whether it is actually original versus adapted material, but nonetheless. And they said that this movie was their Dueling Idiots movie. Yep, they nailed that. Yeah. They said their main goal was to just throw a bunch of really fun characters together and just watch them kind of bounce off one another. And they wrote all of the characters with actors in mind, minus it seems like Tilda Swinton. That one I guess they weren't sure about, but everyone else, it was like Brad Pitt, George Clooney, Francis McDormand, they knew exactly who they wanted for all these roles.
1: It's such a there's such a peculiar cast of characters that uh, yeah, it does feel very much focused on on those actors but i would have said tilda swinton knew exactly what she was doing with this oh yeah um so i i can buy that they did have her in mind particularly um i'm curious though matt when you obviously we'll get to all your thoughts on the film you've just sort of experienced it for the show but you know what were you what was your opinion on sort of the Cohen brothers what do you what do you think of their work
0: wow uh <laughs> that's a biggie yeah. um i guess yeah, I guess, like I say, it, well, it, it feels, I mean, it doesn't really work this way, but you try and put the people into into boxes and they've had such an amazing career. It feels like they've moved through phases. So like I say, it felt like they had their wacky phase, which wasn't really me. The early, early phase with Blood Simple and all that stuff was pretty amazing and got them really noticed. And then there was like the big, felt like the big Oscar phase with No Country for Old Men. And yeah, did I, I just watched, um, is it Joel or Ethan's Macbeth? for the award season. So, I mean, you know, th- th- this is like an extraordinary breadth of of material. And so what do I think of them? I guess depends on which five-year period <laughs> like we're going to pick. Um, I was expecting, because this had Clooney in it, because I felt like it was a follow-on from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and Intolerable Cruelty, I was expecting it to be really sort of heightened and wacky and a bit annoying. But actually, that isn't what happened.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I tend to find myself more drawn to their darker material. So things like Blood Simple, yeah. No Country. Big Lebowski yeah. was always sort of the outlier in that I really loved that one. But something like Raising Arizona didn't grab me as much because when they would go really wacky, I would kind of pull back a little bit. So I think that was, especially back when I was seeing this movie the first time, that was my issue was like, this just wasn't the type of movie from them that I easily connected to. But um couple other notes i'll make just on the development um this was the first film not to have cinematographer roger deakins work with them since 1990s miller's crossing he's one of their key collaborators since then they've worked with them every time since but for this film um they brought in emmanuel lubetsky who was very acclaimed. He had worked on Children of Men and he'd done like Terrence Malick's The New World. He'd also done Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. And he would go on to be a three-time Oscar winner, three in a row. He won for Gravity, Birdman and Revenant between 2014 to 16 and uh, just worked with them the one time here. And then they were back to Deacons. But Deacons at the time was busy doing Revolutionary Road for Sam Mendes.
1: I, I, I mean, I'm not really well up on their sort of other films, so i couldn't really compare and contrast, but would it could any could either of you tell
0: um <laughs> the cinematography yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it
1: it's, sometimes it's it's quite jarring it can be i I don't think I could really see the difference personally
2: I think if maybe I did a side by side yes, but I think like the it so much I find with cinematographers depends on how strong the visual sense of the director is, and mm. the Coen brothers seem very particular, so
0: I I don't know that it jumped out hugely to me. Okay. Okay. Also, this is a film without a without a super strong visual style. You know, it's there. It's in the performances. It's you know set in the real world ostensibly. So certainly, uh, with no disrespect to Mr. Lebetsky, the cinematography wasn't the thing that stood out on the first watch. It felt like a function a functional aspect. Um,
1: it was it was John Malkovich
2: working out, wasn't it? That was what stood <laughs> out. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> And um, Carter Burwell, who did the score for this film and most of their other movies, um, he based the score for this movie on Jerry Goldsmith's score for the 1964 film Seven Days in May, which starred Burt Lancaster. And it was intentionally percussive. And the idea was, according to the info he received from the Coens, they they wanted a very percussive score that means absolutely nothing.
1: (laughs) There's going to be a lot of these anecdotes where it's just like shrug of shoulder, isn't it? Uh, I'm, I'm getting that feeling.
2: Yeah, because on the press, uh, the press notes, handwritten by, or not handwritten, but written by the Cohens themselves, Ethan Cohen wrote, like advise and consent, this is about the personal meeting the political with melodrama. Burn After Reading is also our version of a Tony Scott, Jason Bourne kind of movie without the explosions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. These guys are, I'm starting to like these guys. Maybe we should get them in for an interview and just see how awkward that would be be brutal but Uh, i I looked up advise and consent i wasn't familiar it's a pulitzer prize winning novel by alan drury and it did inspire a 1962 film by otto preminger that i haven't seen so the fact they're just dropping advise and consent in their press notes is amazing because i would imagine a lot of critics would have been having to look that up
1: someone probably had to read it
0: oh yeah do you not feel that there's an element of with those guys of sort of contrarian and they're No, we're going to do this. We're going to do a spy movie without any of the normal spy stuff, and then what we're going to do to explain it, we're going to like explain it after the fact with this great big long, you know, books that people haven't read. Like I feel like they uh, they have a more than sense of humor, and they're slightly taking the piss out of this kind of analysis. I
2: remember when they did "Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou?" and they were on the press tour, and they said, "Oh, it's based on Homer's Odyssey," and then they asked them if they'd read the Odyssey, and they're like, "No." (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> the problem is those things become fact you mm-hmm. know these things become canonical facts without any investigation because i guess there's no explanations coming from them that people start to um take this as as read you know
1: well i, I like that they don't really uh, give this sort of analysis because it means that people like us have to then do it and then we spend hours doing the analysis and then they get the ultimate laugh because we spent hours of our lives examining a film they've made
2: and it's just like they also seem to give almost no direction to their actors like there was a funny story with brad pitt where they said they wrote this role for him and he read it and he's like this guy is a complete idiot like i don't know that i can play someone this stupid like it's gonna be tough for me and joel cohen i think he said was just like you'll be fine
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay i'm liking these guys keep going
2: Yeah. And so there's little clips in this movie of a movie called Coming Up Daisy, a rom-com is clearly them kind of spoofing rom-com conventions. Those sequences were directed by their friend Sam Raimi. So I thought that was very fun. And they used to live with Sam Raimi back in the day. They also um, wrote Sam Raimi's second film, Crime Wave. So the connections between those guys are very close and it's fun to see them crediting sam raimi on the i believe the poster for coming up daisy has his name i'm just trying to think of uh oh yeah i did see them recently
1: in a, I watched dark man for the first time and they were they're, they're in a car yeah that's right randomly yeah and a little sam raimi connection there.
2: <laughs> yep so the budget for this one was 37 million domestically it did 60.3 international 103.4 for a worldwide total of 163.7 which is kind of insane, given the movie we're about to talk about. (laughs) That means like everyone
1: went to basically go... Not everyone went to go see it. That would be an insane amount of money. But the people genuinely wanted to turn up for this film. And I have no sense of what the marketing must have
2: been like. Because how do you do a trailer for this film? I think what they did was they marketed the stars. And that probably got people to show up. Mm. Yeah, very good point. And also you throw on, you know, from the directors of No Country for Old Men, which just won the Oscar, it would have had enough marketing material for them to push it. I don't think audiences were caring about um, advise and consent references.
1: <laughs> a, a minute and a half, like, uh, just clips of George Clooney saying, hmm, I think I could get in a run.
2: Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So uh, the movie landed at number 44 at the worldwide box office for that year, right between Four Christmases and The Happening. That is a sandwich right there. <laughs> I can't say I've seen either of those.
1: Is The Happening a horror film?
2: Yeah, that's the M. Night Shyamalan one with the plants.
0: Yeah, it's pretty bad.
2: Legendarily bad. Is it, is it part of that
1: like post-Signs, post-Sixth Sense Shyamalan stuff where it's just not very good?
2: Oh, it's legendarily bad. Yeah. Oh.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm surprised okay.
2: you actually haven't seen yeah. it because it's, such, it's become like this cult classic of all-time worst movies.
1: I just go back and watch The Room on repeat when I want bad movies. That's all I'll ever need. And The House on 92nd
2: Street. If you want to see characters try to outrun the wind, watch The Happening. (laughs) Okay. All right. All Um, right. Top three for the year. Number one was The Dark Knight. Number two, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And number three was Kung Fu Panda. A few other spy movies this year or films we've covered on the podcast or will. Number seven was Quantum of Solace. Number 15, Wanted. Number 27, Get Smart. Number 28, Taken. Number 55, Body of Lies, the Ridley Scott film and number 162, Traitor, starring Don Cheadle. And just my final note, this movie was completely shut out of the Oscars. It was just not a critical darling over here. But um, over in the UK, you guys got it. It actually got three BAFTA nominations for Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for Brad Pitt, and Best Supporting Actress for Tilda Swinton.
1: Huh. I I, I, haven't got into the review yet, but uh, it definitely
2: has a particular sense of humor to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and. I, I just—if you look up the reviews by American critics at the time, there was a lot of—I think—the sort of attitude I was bringing as well as like this is them wasting their time after No Country. Okay.
1: Well, I'm fascinated now. I—I I, want to start with Matt. We're talking about it. This is Matt's first time watching it. So, what do you think of this film, sir?
0: I—it's um, difficult. So, like with uh, like ordinary punter hat on or critic hat on, uh, I was. So I enjoyed it. It's, the, it's great fun to see all these great names, you know, uh, huge stars all playing around. And the Cones sort of put them all in one place and just set them running. So you've got, you know, you've got Brad Pitt, here doing this and John Malkovich doing that. All these great sort of uh, people that you're so familiar with. And that was fun. It was really short as punchy and moves along. I've got to say, overall, it was a sense of kind of, it ended with a sense of meh. It ended with a sense of kind of, int- intentionally, there's there's no big climax. We don't see how anyone's stories uh, play out. We we hear how they play out. And so there's like an intentional, we're not going to have any any uh, sort of spy theatrics. We're not going to have any climax. So it was like the Cohens setting all this amazing stuff in motion and then saying, ha ha, sort of screw you. Yeah, we're not going to end this how you think we are. We're going to end this in a kind of uh, uh, sort of quite a... a, a a downbeat, ah, well, none of it really matters kind of way, which is all well and good and all clever, clever in your screenplay, but in your viewing experience means that I was laughing, I was enjoying it, you know, uh, and then it got to the end and I was like, oh, well, what was the point of that? And there's something that when they do that right, it feels really brave. There's moments in No Country for Old Men that sort of subvert your expectations and do that. And other times it feels really almost like a bit disrespectful. It's almost a bit like, you know, it ends with the spy spy satellite watching events and it just cuts up and up and up and up to that satellite and it just feels like a bit like they're just up there directing and who cares what the viewers think which sometimes is really cool and sometimes it's a bit like oh come on guys like just invest in 90 minutes in this like give me give me something to go home with um and i know it's not accidental i know they didn't fuck up like i know they're (laughs) insanely talented and they're doing something on purpose but that thing on purpose is can be frustrating as a viewer experience
1: yeah, I, I think it was a... I mean, I don't know what they're like. I'm starting to learn what they're like. So definitely that ending was a choice they made. But it's it's interesting because we recently covered and, and finally, finally wrapped up the Spy Kids films. Well, <laughs> well, Rodriguez is trying to change that. There might be a fifth one. I don't know. Please don't. Please don't. Anyway, in that first film, around about... Was it 2002 that came out, Cam? 2001. 2001. This is a kid's film, it's a comedy, but you could tell Rodriguez has a passion for the genre of spy films and actually cares about it a little bit. And there's maybe something I bumped on with this and I will agree with you, Matt. I, I think they just show sort of apathy towards the genre and I, it doesn't it doesn't deserve them to pay attention. We do a spy movie podcast. So of course we're you know, we care about the genre, that's what we do. But I I don't know that whole ending. You spent ninety minutes investing in the characters, and I mean, you just find out off screen basically that half of them got killed, and the other ones are just I don't know, being sent off on planes, and you just you just kind of shrug. And that feels like there could have been a a different way of ending it. But who am I to argue with the Coen brothers? So I just sit there going, okay.
0: What they do really well is they they take sort of ordinary little people and spin their stories out but it happens really well in Fargo you know it happens Frances McDormand's character here is just works in the gym wants to get her body done and this is her, her big ticket and they take their destiny suddenly spun out of their control and takes them somewhere dot 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 but in this place as you say it just takes them to like a grey CIA room where everything is like signed sealed stamped and then put back in the thing and that it's quite a novel way to do the spy thing. You know, it's making it sort of micro rather than macro. But yeah, also, you know, this is in places, quite a big, broad comedy. And then, yeah, it, it just it ends with such a sigh. Mm. Well,
1: okay, Cam, you, you've you teased us with your very impassioned hatred, almost by the sounds of it, of the original version of this film. So I need to know what you think about it now, but I think you might have queued up what you thought about it then.
2: Yeah, so I pulled it up and it opened with, meet with a joke. that was (laughs) Well, I'll just read the the joke that I wrote. So a guy walks into a bar. It's in Chicago and it's raining hard outside. Now the guy is wearing a gray overcoat with a battered fedora and nerdy glasses. He's an accountant. Anyways, the guy takes off his coat and hangs it on a crooked coat rack and walks up to the bartender who's about 60. The bartender is nervously reaching for the telephone, but the guy doesn't see that. So the guy looks at him and says, what do you recommend for a wet accountant? The barman looks him up and down and says, whiskey on the rocks. The guy drinks it and leaves. The above anecdote best explains how I felt walking out of burn after reading. An anarchic ensemble comedy that jerks and shoves the audience through a litany of plot twists and and turns, only to deposit them, breathless and impatient, back into their seats, pat them on the head, and and inform them that the punchline is that there isn't one. Thanks for coming, folks. Don't forget your jackets on the way out. I was annoyed.
1: Wow. Boom. Boom. (laughs) <laughs> I mean that 2008 cam was was going for the like the neck on
2: that one that's a, that's a fierce rebuttal of the film. I, and it's funny because like I think on one hand I was bang on like that is kind of what the movie's doing. But at the same time watching it the other night it felt much more as in yes like that is specifically what the punchline is and I think I really responded to it a lot more this time just I knew what the ending was bringing. I knew that essentially I was gonna have those CIA guys just kind of writing everything off, zoom out, credits. And so I found myself much more drawn into the idea of A, an espionage film in which there's no real espionage whatsoever. It's people just basically running around in circles, letting kind of their personal lives spiral out of control. And then B, I think it's something that I would not have understood when I wrote that, you know, as what, like a 20-something university student, which is like, Having now been in the working world for quite a long time, 20 plus years, I guess, you begin to realize at a certain point, like, all organizations are kind of run (laughs) through, essentially, um, children and adults' bodies. Like, everyone can have the best of intentions, but there's always a high degree of mess associated which is why i tend to now struggle with like conspiracy theories because the idea of everyone working together to create a conspiracy that is a completely effective does not make any sense after you've been in a working professional situation and so i kind of liked that this movie that's kind of the point of its treatment of the cia is that we tend to look at them in movies like born for example as these sort of overlords who are controlling all the chess pieces and the movie is ultimately underscoring that no, they're the same as these nincompoops running around with this disc of financial information, just causing chaos. So you've you've almost 180ed on it then, I'd say. I I guess I've what I've done is 180 would on my um, how I responded to what they're doing. I think the first time it actually really frustrated me because I remember also being put off by how mean spirited it was towards like the two nicest characters in the movie. And this time I responded more to it as just very, very funny, very dark comedy. So maybe it's just the years. Yeah, you, you're just more withered and, and full of hate now. I have nothing left, Scott. <laughs> nothing. <laughs>
1: That's what two years of spy movies will do
2: to you, I think. It's the Spy Kids uh, series, Scott. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Well, we seem to have a contrasting of opinions here between the two of you, which is nice. I, I like that; it, it breeds conversation. I, I think I unfortunately sit somewhere in the middle between the two of you. I, I I enjoyed it the first time I watched it, but I maybe I didn't think too deeply about it, and and that's why I probably enjoyed it because it's just kind of a quirky comedy and poking fun at the stereotypes, the sort of like the things that spy movies do, and and now looking back on it. The first time because I always watched the films twice, the first time I rewatched it, I definitely got a bit more of Cam's original thoughts. And my notes say the same thing where like, hey, it's just poking fun, but like it's mean spirited. And then my second rewatch, I just sort of realized this is just this is just a big shrug and poking fun at the whole idea of having a trope. And this whole idea of like that Jason Bourne is this amazing spy out there, whereas really is just a bunch of idiots running around in tuxedos. And I, I, I think that's ultimately a very funny idea that, that really what we're being shown in these films is nowhere near the truth. And really, it's just people just about getting by and going home at the end of the day. Right. Um, and that, and I think so overall, I think it's 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 a refreshingly quirky and interesting take on a spy film. And I think we've had so many different types of spy
2: films on the show so far. It's fun to have something that's outside of the box. And it's something when we started the podcast I was genuinely concerned that sure weeks you know 1 through 12 are fun but by the time we start getting into a year in are we just watching essentially the same movie every week and that has not been the case because they kind of bounce all over the place and there's nothing quite like this one
1: No and I and I think that might be something we we'll circle back to later um but yeah I it's interesting that it takes these two to come at it from this angle. And yet we've been having spy films since I don't know the nineteen twenties. It's probably our earliest mm-hmm. one on the list. And it, it, mm-hmm. it I mean, maybe there is an earlier example that we haven't come across in like the thirties or forties, some sort of poking fun at the tropes, or maybe something in the late sixties with all the bond spoofs that you had at the time. But this just feels so unique that I can't help but smile when I watch it. Yeah. Let's let's talk about things that we did like before we sort of focus on some other things. But I i i'll I'll throw to you matt a particular thing about your film you enjoyed
0: i well look so these are pretty much some of the best actors in the business so just watching them do their stuff is so you know so much fun like you say why did audience go see that they went because who doesn't want to go and spend time with Clooney and pitt and mcdormand and so some of their like little moments i loved like i love george Clooney is a sort of He's subverting his George, he's a womanizer, Mm -hmm. but he's otherwise subverting his George Clooney image because he's an idiot. And he's making his wife a very, (laughs) very special present all the way through the movie. And then when you realise what the present is, spoilers, it's a sort of swing chair with with a a cheap looking dildo that just uh, arches up at what might be a sort of opportune, uh rhythm Mm. and he's what's so funny is he's so amazingly proud of this and he, he shows it to tilda swinton and he's sort of proud 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 and he speaks to his wife near the end of the film and he says but honey you've got to come home your presents ready and you just realize that he's been planning this terrible terrible sex toy for ages and that is really funny and it's also doubly funny that it's super smooth george doing it um i love brad i love this uh, Frances McDormand's amazing, and there's one thing she in the film that she does really, really well is that she plays this sort of slightly cartoony character, but because mm-hmm. she, she's such a good actor, you, she brings pathos to it. So she says at one point, I wrote, wrote this down because I just love this, and this is like good Cohen stuff. And she says to Brad, she says, "This is your opportunity. You don't get many of these. You slip outside, a step on ice outside a fancy restaurant, or something like this happens." And it's that idea that you're such a nobody that. all of your life. The best thing that might happen is that you fall on some ice and consume a restaurant or you you find a disc of CIA secrets and can use it to blackmail. Those are your two options. Other than that, it's all just going to be boring. And there's something so tragic in that line that, yeah, I really love that. And they're just, I I, I completely agree.
1: And I love that the main characters for the most part are just so completely earnest. Yeah. And you, you can't help but root for them a little bit um i mean some of them are bigger assholes than the others yeah but and and they're all actually kind of bad guys at the same time because they're almost all cheating on each other with someone else um and i loved in another parallel strange spy universe the head of the oss or the president of the united states george Clooney, uh from the spy kids was uh you know building a sex uh chair um i that's a strange world i'm living in
2: and I love the ways they tease that where it shows dramatic moments of him like building it and they're obscuring what it is. And then his his big breakdown moment is smashing the yeah. sex chair. <laughs> yeah. It keeps like bobbing
1: up and down that the the, uh, the sex toys just keeps flopping around in the wind. Oh, yeah. yeah I, that, I love the bit yeah. where he like, he reveals it to to Frances McDormand and there's like a pause where she looks at it and like you're meant to think she's going to think it's horrible. But then she goes, oh, it's really nice. And just like, it actually really enjoys it. But you also can tell there's like there's no, like, deviancy, in a sense, with, with Clooney. He's just a very sexually positive man. He just thinks this is a cool thing to build. There's nothing, like, creepy about it. And he, that's why he calls his wife and says, hey, your present's waiting for you, because it's not sinister. It's just fun, I guess, for him.
2: But it's also, like, a group of characters who are um, feeling unfulfilled and seeking happiness in ways that is ultimately they're undoing. You know, like Frances McDormand just wants to get plastic surgery to feel better about herself. We and it's this pursuit, well, it's this pursuit of the money that ultimately leads to a lot of the dire things. You know, her teaming up with Pitt to sell this disc is ultimately what brings about his death. And it seems that's the case for so many of the characters. Richard Jenkins just wants to win the approval of Francis McDormand. So he goes to the house and gets himself, you know, killed with an axe. It's just this endless string of <laughs> kind of lonely, unfulfilled people, like just reaching out for happiness and having it just bite their hands. Um, yeah, I, I just, I I do
1: love just that that sense of humanity in the film. Because we've all had moments, maybe not where we go out and build a sex chair, but... Moments of desperation in our lives. And I I think we can sympathize with that. Yeah. Um, What about you,
2: Cam? Something you liked? Uh, I want to just say Brad Pitt is absolutely incredible in this movie. Like, you don't see him do enough of these big comic performances, but he is so fantastic. Mm. I think my favorite scene, maybe in the whole movie, is him in the car talking to John Malkovich and doing the squint at him like trying to look like this imposing like spy figure it's essentially an idiot putting on a performance throughout this movie and and i'm not referring to brad pitt as an idiot so much as (laughs) (laughs) the character of chad is an idiot putting on this act of how a spy might work and like scenes where he's on the phone talking to malkovich in the middle of the night are just i was really laughing out loud at moments like that and honestly i don't know if i was when i saw it in theaters And also, like, something else that made me genuinely really laugh this time that I think, as I kind of indicated in my initial review, annoyed the hell out of me the first time, was the J.K. Simmons at the end. All of his delivery of this just like, well, okay, I guess we learned something. I don't, don't know what we learned, but I guess we learned something, so we won't do that again, whatever that was. Bits like that, I think, are just so incredibly well delivered. It's one of those benefits you get when you cast just bona fide movie stars in these types of parts.
1: Yeah, we, we've seen so many films now with, like, men in rooms talking about what's happening in the film, trying to give you exposition, trying to, like, lead you in the film. But, like, this is the anti-version of that. This is the complete opposite where they're just shrugging because they can't make sense of the plot, nor can you particularly. So you just have fun with it. And I, I like that sort of taking the legs out of the genre. There's not many... Because you look at like the 60s spy spoofs and, and then like the return they had with the, the Johnny Englishes, like we mentioned, and the Austin Powers. But they never really deal with the underlying problems that spy films sometimes have. They just more deal with the funny bits. And I like that this film actually goes, no, this is completely ludicrous that they, this sort of stuff happens. And uh, I, I appreciate that.
2: Hmm. Yeah, like there's a sense of the absurd in this movie, and that's something that's common throughout the Coen brothers' work. But here it feels like they double down, and it's one of those things that they do every now and again where they really double down on the absurd, and they're often criticized for running their characters through the gamut and not being particularly kind to them, and I think that was also something that people who didn't respond to this movie could very much point to and be correct in criticizing this movie for.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think if I'm going to bring up... I had a couple of likes, but the first one that springs up in sort of my list in front of me is... This is definitely well written in the sense of this set up and payoff throughout the film. You've got um, everything from the, the sex chair, like we mentioned, um, the the private detective that follows George Clooney around the film. You think it's a spook that's chasing him, but really it's actually his wife trying to divorce him whilst he spent the entire film breaking up relationships himself. So that comes to back to bite him in the arse. And also like the cosmetic surgery of it all that actually like really sets this film in motion is Francis McDormand trying to get cosmetic surgery to be her better self according to whatever she's got in her psyche and by the end they just kind of write it off and just sort of say yeah give her the money and i, I liked that it has set up and payoff throughout the other thing i um, just wanted to say is i felt really bad for Richard jenkins
2: <laughs> oh i mean they want you to mm, poor guy yeah
1: um and i would just also in terms of this is more of a personal one I spent many years working in gyms, and it was the weirdest thing to see Francis McDormand selling gym memberships. And I've done that tour around that gym, and I said, "Oh yeah, this is the quiet time." And It was just so weird seeing someone be me in a film. Um, I I then immediately went to try and get cosmetic surgery as well. Did you feel seen? I did. I did feel seen. Yes. Hmm. Mm.
2: Um. But any any other likes, chaps? I throw it out. I would say that. Um... John Malkovich's pronunciation of memoir oh, is something yeah. <laughs> that I will carry with me forever.
0: No, you can see you see in the film that there's two words that every t- the, the the Coens are behind the camera going "go on again" and that whenever he goes memoir like they just rinse that and also every time someone says Osborne Cox which is Malkovich's characters you can see that there's a pause and they go "So what about this Osborne Cox?" And someone somewhere is just like a, more, a bit more on the cocks because they just love pronouncing those words. And yeah, those bits are really funny, definitely.
2: Also, the um, George Clooney going for runs that they bring up multiple times is always funny.
1: I, I did have a question regarding the memoir. Yes. Do you think you could write a memoir about your life right
2: now and people would buy it? Well, that's two different questions there. Could I write a memoir? probably my memory is fairly strong i could probably do enough anecdotes but would anyone buy it no maybe you at best no (laughs) i told you every day i'm buying your memoir well maybe i would buy my own copy and then mail it to you for christmas so that's one sold at least you maybe you'd sign it i guess yeah Yeah. What, what about you matt do you think
1: you have enough life experience for a memoir (laughs)
0: The thing is, it's a big call. So if you write all of your deepest, darkest secrets in a book, firstly, you risk burning everyone you've ever loved. Mm -hmm. Secondly, as you say, if you write that book and the book is terrible, or let's say it's a masterpiece, but no one wants to read it, that is heartbreak. So uh, no, I wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) And you're a man that's
1: put books out into the world. So you're the expert in that sense.
0: Yes, and it's much more fun when they're successful than when they're not, and they don't contain the deepest, darkest secrets of my soul. So you know, it's like I've I've survived both success and failure, and so yeah, if I put everything out there and someone was like, "God, this is boring," two stars, uh, I yeah, I I don't think I'd recover from that. Why would I do that?
2: So is this a spoiler that your literary agent won't be getting a call as this for the next pitch? <laughs>
0: well you know make me an offer but no uh, no
1: <laughs> it's a job no 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 i i you so you feel so bad for malkovich when when swinton's turning around just going who would read that like that's just so gutting but like everyone's had that person in their life when they try to do something creative and they'd be like who would listen to that podcast about spy movies
2: oh yeah and I think it's actually kind of funny too, in that um, you have Malkovich. He's the CIA guy, right? Like in theory, he would know secrets. Like his book could really offer something. But I think the movie then spends the next hundred minutes um, essentially establishing that no, he wouldn't really know anything (laughs) of interest whatsoever.
0: (laughs) And also, when you say that when it's John Malkovich cast in this role as a CIA agent, you're like, right, this guy's gonna be the shit he's going to know everything he's going to know where the bodies are buried he's going to be the jk simmons character and then the reality is he's an, he's an idiot like everyone else which is really unusual seeing malkovich like he's so commanding it's unusual to see him playing such a buffoon as well
2: it's weird though when i think of malkovich in the realm of sort of the spy genre he doesn't do a lot and the only other thing that pops to mind is his role in do you remember the two red movies the bruce willis films and it's like he plays kind of a whack job in, that, in those movies as well. I don't think we've ever seen like a serious Malkovich take on a spy movie. There's got to be one in the 90s or something he did that we haven't stumbled across yet. One would hope, but nothing's popping to mind at least.
1: Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll find it eventually. Sure.
2: We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Agents, pardon the interruption, but we have some top secret intel. That's right, independent podcasting is not cheap. Equipment, hosting, research, we don't have Townsend Agency resources. And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. No one wants to hear that shit, tucky Mushrooms. And this is a big reason we created the Spy Hards Patreon. So we're here asking for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to bring your listening experience up to branch standards. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to
1: dive into, become a true Spy Hard today and enter the Xander Zone at patreon.com slash spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now, Cam, on with the Spy Jinx. I suppose that maybe we'll pivot over to dislikes and quibbles, things that we have uh, for the film. Uh, Matt, you first.
0: You, I mean, what what we've been talking about this this uh, love hate, this sort of balancing mm. act that the Cohen brothers do with sort of uh, seeming to give it all and then withdrawing is is my bad. And actually, you've been talking really eloquently about that, so that talking about it afterwards, I like the film more. Um, but yeah, that all of all of that that thing of the sort of seeming to be above it all, up in space, setting this all in motion, and then not necessarily individually paying it off, so you can see it, uh, not having any of the the things we expect from spy five, five films. All of those, you know, you could put those as both good and bad. But those feel like uh, demerits to the experience. One of the things which I haven't touched upon yet is the big spoilerific death. Mm of Brad Pitt. Is this the place to do Oh, spoiler away. Spoiler um, away. Go for it. Well, it's not that I feel good or bad about it. The thing, and this is what, uh, <laughs> one of the things that's really annoying about being a critic or writing about film. So way back before the internet got this big is that even before that point, things would be spoiled for you because people would tell you stuff or whatever. So I haven't seen this film. It's from 2008. It's what, 13 years later. I have not seen this movie. But I sat there with my wife watching it knowing that Brad Pitt was going to get his brains blown out. I was like, oh, come on, like, at least, so she was really surprised and shocked, which obviously I think everyone would have been in 2008, but yeah, this is one of those things you can't have, those none, those secrets don't exist anymore, and obviously less so now, but I thought that might be safe, so yeah, I knew that one was coming, and so it wasn't shocking, and it just felt, uh, mean.
1: It's, it's interesting, because, you know, I, um, I had remembered that, but I had completely forgotten about the sex chair. mm so when I rewatched it, I when they went downstairs <laughs> to the dungeon, I was like, what is that? Oh,
2: okay. We're going for a ride. That, that... I was in the same boat, same boat or same chair, <laughs> oh. maybe. Um, yeah, like, because I also had completely forgotten about the sex chair, but the Brad Pitt death had also really stuck in my mind. I'd actually forgotten about the Richard Jenkins one, which surprised me. When it happened again, I was like, oh, that's right. But I'd forgotten that.
1: I never noticed the brutal bit because when he's attacking him with the axe, like you see one
0: go into yeah, his cuts, head. Like, there's, like, yeah, oh, do there's, you? There's like a
1: blood spurt comes out of his head and everything. It's quite gory, actually. It's, it's like a split second, but it's there.
0: This is the power of memory because I watched it last week and in my head it cut, all cut away before it got brutal. There you go.
1: You don't really see the axe going in, but like you see an axe land on his head, and then blood like crack down his skull and shoot out. It's it's quite grim actually. Um, but it cuts immediately to the the office.
0: When Jenkins got that script, you must have thought, "There's no way I'm going to live through this film." <laughs> Pitt, Clooney, Malkovich, hang on, <laughs> <laughs> McDormand, Swinton, me. Oh, I'm definitely dead.
2: <laughs> and I mean. That's something they so often write about Cohen Brothers is that their movies take place in this sort of pitiless universe where there is no happy endings for people based on morality like things can just happen at any time, and that's very clearly at in action here with Brad Pitt. you can say, well, he's been up to some maybe kind of shady things, although it's not coming from a place of blackmail, but he does want a reward um but uh the Richard Jenkins character that's the one that I remember. You know, looking back, having more of a visceral reaction in theaters of just like, I don't know that I was prepared to meet the movie at that point on its terms of like accepting that sort of level of mean-spiritedness. I was like, well, this is a bunch of, you know, actors having fun on screen. This should be kind of a lighthearted affair. And hitting me with a scene like that feels insincere. And I don't think I felt that way watching it the other night. Well, let's take it back a little bit and just sort of look at...
1: Cause- Cam and I have been doing spy films for two years. I'm not going to say we're experts, but we've watched a lot of spy films. Matt, you critique films Mm. for a living. You write books about films. I think between us, we probably can form an opinion about films. But films aren't just made for us, the people who analyze them. They're made for general audiences that go to the theaters. And apparently a lot of people turned up to see this film. So if we're looking at that, that death of Brad Pitt and the death of Richard Jenkins... I I think the Brad Pitt one is very abrupt. I'm not sure... I I think it surprises you, which spy films do try to do, but I I think it's a loss to the film that you lose Brad Pitt like two-thirds in.
0: Yeah, I mean, viewers must have been gutted, right? Imagine the number of people going to see a, a comedy from the people that won that Oscar starring Brad Pitt, and then he's in it a tiny bit, and then he takes an early bath in the most brutal way possible. And also, at that point, the film... Reveals how little it cares about. How, how on one hand, how little it cares about these characters. I say so. In that point, not only is Brad gone, but you also realize you're in a pitiless universe, which is quite the come down if you're just going for like a Friday night good time.
2: I think the difference between the two big deaths is like the Brad Pitt one does feel a little bit like a punchline. Like it's a very dark punchline, and it's it's yeah, appropriate. Yeah, yeah. These guys are friends with Sam Raimi because Sam Raimi movies. While more, I think, upbeat and loving of their characters are filled with that sort of kind of poking humor with the audience. And the Brad Pitt one, it does like pay off with like a lot of very, very funny George Clooney stuff. Where I would say, I would say like the Jenkins one, it's not really a punchline and it's really just a resolution to the Malkovich character. And so it doesn't give you that sort of the relief of the laughter. It's more like a shock moment.
1: Yeah, I wonder how audiences sort of felt coming out of the theaters. Because if people were turning up because of the previous work of the Cohen Brothers, you know, Big Lebowski, No Country for All, that sort of stuff, No Country, um, then I could see why there was like, why people would go. But were they thrilled with it? Critics obviously didn't like it, but I wonder what general audiences thought when they were coming out of the theaters.
2: Well, have either of you ever been in busy screenings of Coen Brothers
0: movies? No, no. I've the ones I've seen at the cinema have been stuff like uh, The Man Who Wasn't There, which <laughs> there was nobody in the cinema because it's quite a niche <laughs> proposition. Yeah, um, that's a good call there. Uh, so <laughs> a- aptly named. <laughs> <laughs> no, I loved it, but yeah, it was there wasn't there wasn't a, there wasn't a busy wasn't a busy screening. Turns no.
2: out, no. So, I saw Burn After Reading at a matinee, as I recall. So, like, it wasn't particularly busy. Like, it would have been a weekday. But I did see No Country and A Serious Man opening weekend in relatively full theaters. And there was like visceral anger from the audience when the movie ended, where you could genuinely hear people. Like, just basically gasp in annoyance when the movie ends kind of abruptly. Like, both of them have very abrupt endings. And there was just that the deflated, like, oh, kind of response. And then people complaining about the movie when it was over. That seems to be kind of a common thing I've experienced with Coen Brothers movies, where they pull in a crowd because they got movie stars. They can really put together good trailers and... I genuinely think the average person doesn't really know who the Cohen brothers are so they're just showing up for the movie stars and kind of the yeah there you go like Scott you're I guess a more casual <laughs> you've seen a few but you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a lifelong you know worshipper of their work and that's that's the common thing people show up cuz they see Brad Pitt George Clooney Francis McDormand mm-hmm. stars like that and they get an experience that is not like a mainstream comedy and is actively ridiculing mainstream comedies in the Dermot Mulrooney f- uh, film here. And I think they're often left deflated, but they keep showing up because of the star power in these movies. Well, I, I'm sure we could spend hours dissecting what people think about the Cohen Brothers films. I, I
1: think it's an interesting experiment to put it in front of general audiences because I think if you're a spy movie fan there's probably some interesting things to take from this film but
2: we we try and cater for both here but cam i'm interested what's something you have as a dislike i don't know that there's anything i can really point to as a major issue for me i think what there is though is just sort of the nagging sense in the back of my brain that when measured against the rest of the coen brothers filmography this is more of a minor film than a major and when I'm talking to majors, you know, it's stuff like Blood Simple, No Country, Fargo, um, A Serious Man, I really, really love. And I actually, I'm actually a really big fan of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs from a couple years ago. Whereas, like, this one, I kind of put on a similar plateau as something like, um, you know, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Or um, Hail Caesar from a couple years ago. Um, so I guess just in that regard... I don't think it's quite inspired enough to belong in the conversation for their best work, but I think it's a really good example of their comedy, which often falls kind of flat with me with some of their really wacky films.
1: Well, it's interesting because we haven't tackled many comedies on the show, straight comedies. We've had like spoof films, we've had Liquidator, stuff like that. But, you know, I remember we had Central Intelligence last year. You didn't find that funny. So in terms of that side of things, Cam, did you find this laugh out loud funny?
2: At several points, yes.
1: Is this the closest
2: to what you would call a successful comedy that we've tackled so far? I don't regard it as like a mainstream comedy though. So for a very specific brand of comedy, yes, but it's not the sort of thing that I would say. All movies need to be like this in a theater to make everyone laugh. Like I look at something like 40-Year-Old Virgin and I go, that's a pretty perfect audience experience. This one is very specific. It's more of a cult audience type of vibe.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the only dislike I've got left that hasn't really been mentioned, we haven't dug too much into is I just have trouble with oh, we I suppose we have kind of dug into it a little bit, but there's no one really to root for in this film. There's no lead protagonist and everyone's basically an asshole. And that it Can be interesting viewing if you're looking at cinema and trying to you know dig into the depths of what film can do. But for the uh, the average person like me, who couldn't tell his Coen brothers film from a, a Francis Ford Coppola film, I wouldn't know the difference. I, I just kind of struggle to follow along sometimes and root for anyone because once Richard Jenkins was probably the closest I had to someone I cared about is is oft. I just uh, you kind of shrug like I don't care that George Clooney's wife had been planning to leave him the whole film because he had it coming no i don't care that francis mcdormand and brad pitt met met bad ends because they were trying to extort money so i i think that's perhaps a problem of the film but i think an intentional problem
2: yeah like who would you say that i i don't even know if they would say that you're supposed to root for any of them but i would say probably francis mcdormand is the most sympathetic character well she's she's a very interesting one and I think probably you're right,
1: actually, because she's clearly someone going through something. Yeah, and that that focus on trying to, in her mind, better her visual self is a clear case of, in in my opinion, sort of body dysmorphia. Something that really has become more something we've looked at in more recent years. Um, it's it's being poked fun at here, but I don't think maliciously. Um, and it, it it's an interesting interpretation of someone going through that. As someone who spent a long time working in gyms, I've seen people. Who who look at themselves in the mirror and and genuinely see a different person, and it can be quite the traumatic experience. And so I, I think she she as as actually as Matt said earlier, she gets genuine moments of pathos in this film, and I appreciate that the film gives her that opportunity to
2: spotlight that issue. And also just the experiences with online dating, Oof. which can be crushing. Like this movie is a little bit ahead of the curve because you know now in 2022, you live in an era of Bumble and Tinder and all of these apps, but this is 2008, and you have her going on these dates that are just, like, crushing, right? Like, there's the one with the really boring dude that ends with her finding the note in the wallet, and you're just like, oh, this poor woman who just, every scene she's going into these dates, you can see it's just all optimism and just, like, this need to meet someone, like, this actual, like, wanting someone in her life and just seeing her get crushed again and again is just, it's tough to watch in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think we could all agree that we would definitely swipe
1: right on George Clooney, though. <laughs> as
0: long as he shows me his chair.
2: <laughs> yes. In In Washington D.C., do does like everyone on a dating app meet at those benches, those famous benches?
1: <laughs> it, I. I've had some strange stories in my time of online dating, but uh, never never been taken back to someone's house and introduced to their sex chair. On a second date, at least, anyway. So uh, <laughs> it's definitely more of a fifth date kind of thing with me.
2: Mm, right, uh, right. Yeah.
1: But, um, yeah, I, I, it, a very grim reality, especially a bit like right into the, the film where she sees the past date, who I guess was cheating on his wife as well yeah uh sitting waiting for his next date slash victim um yeah quite quite a sad look at what dating has become but uh boy does it make me glad i'm in a long-term relationship
2: (laughs) there you go (laughs) does this movie have anything to say about like disinformation because it's something that i think in 2008 i would not have walked out of this movie with any real sense of like oh yeah this is really touching on the here and now in a way that I find it particularly impactful, but watching it now in 2022, I'm like, huh, (laughs) we've lived through some very strange times in the last like five, six, seven years. And suddenly I find the messages of this movie of kind of this information all being interpreted in different ways by different people to be both very funny and also, you know, just kind of sad. (laughs) It's, it's kind
1: of scary how quickly this can dissolve and, and spin out of control. And I think this is how you like, I think this is over the space of about two or three days, this entire drama. And, you know, three people are killed and all sorts of stuff happens from a disc that I think it's never really quite solved. But what was on that disc?
0: His memoirs.
1: See, well, I thought the financial records were also on there too.
2: I thought it was oh, the, maybe. the, it's the records, I think, for the um, divorce proceedings that Tilda Swinton is investigating.
0: Oh, I thought his memoirs was on there too. Because I said it was gibberish. Yeah. I think it might have been, was it both? Yeah, but I thought, yeah, maybe both because you're right, she scans the files. Mm. And then so maybe in doing that, uh, she also gets his memoirs. A memoir. And uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a memoir. I felt like when we were watching it, I felt like... This is a really like, prescient vision of the age of surveillance. But I also thought that it was a film made in the late 90s. And when it finished and I checked and I was like, oh, 2008. Oh, yeah, we knew all this stuff already. <laughs> we knew that phones are going to be everywhere. We knew that internet dating is going to be crap. Like, no, maybe not internet dating, but, you know. Uh, yeah, it felt like that, that was it sort of re- something really clever it brought to the table. Is that like, look at all this power and look how crap it will end up mm. being. And then actually when I realized it was 2008, we were already halfway Into that being that wasn't prescient, that was just what was happening. It feels like
1: it's. uh, I spinning off from there, Cam. It's kind of, I'm out of my dislikes now, but I did have a note I was going to bring up, but it really does connect to what you just said. Recently, listeners will know we covered the uh, 1980 Sean Penn film, The Falcon and the Snowman, and I was blown away today by how strangely those two films connect this and that one. Um, I mean, it's all about. Someone coming across information and trying to sell it to the Russians. Literally happens in both films. One person leaves the priesthood in both films. Um, and I, I was just blown away by that strange connection between the two and how the story of Falcon and the Snowman could just easily be turned into a comedy version. And that would be this film.
2: I noticed that after I'd, I th- Think Yeah, just after I finished watching Burn After Eating, I was just looking through Letterboxd at some reviews, and someone mentioned Falcon and the Snowman, and I was like, oh my god. No way. They mentioned yeah, it. Yeah, it's just like, you're right. Like I, I definitely, my ears kind of perked up at the selling information to the Russians stuff, mm-hmm. but I was also like, well, is that really that crazy a connection? No. Um, but you're right, when you look at kind of the overall, the number of moments, I mean, I didn't think, I mean... I did the behind-the-scenes on Falcon and the Snowman. That was not a particularly popular movie, so I don't know. But again, if the Coen brothers are referencing, like, *Advice and consent in interviews, like, who's to say they didn't watch Falcon and the Snowman on TV one night? <laughs> They're just like, hey, check out this really
1: obscure Sean Penn film from, like, 1983 or whenever it came out, and uh, you can't find it anymore. But that's that's, that's, what, that's what's in there, like, EPK or whatever they sent out. Just Just a copy of the Falcon and the Snowman. That and the Odyssey yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> i did think it was a great joke though of richard jenkins uh mentioning that he spent 14 years in the greek orthodox as a priest you're like what <laughs> like what a weird aside
0: yeah that was good when he showed this shows the photo of himself and then he goes in many ways i'm a lot happier now anyway i don't want to talk about it and then it just on with the film <laughs> yeah that was cute
1: classic this film it sets it up and then ah
0: yeah yeah that's the yeah, yeah. um well, I,
1: I'll throw it out to the room before we get to the knock list. But any final thoughts? That was that was my last one. So, um, Matt, do you have any sort of final notes on the film?
0: I have no final notes on the film. All of my notes have been uh, disseminated,
1: and now they're being interpreted and misinterpreted and sold to the Russians.
0: <laughs> it's it's an interesting film
2: because I think when you talk about, uh, you know, other films we've done on this podcast, there's a lot of kind of morsels to dig into whereas a movie like this you find yourself more because it has pretty it's pretty singular in what it's trying to do that you just find yourself kind of reciting funny lines or moments of performances like I don't know that it has sort of the depth that if we were doing say a you know a podcast on no country for old men I think it offers a lot more conversation points
1: I think I I I have seen that film, although I can I don't think I can remember it. But if say if if I span that into the Big Lebowski, for instance, I think there's a lot more I could pick apart in that. I think that's a lot more. There's many more visuals in that film that I could talk about than this. I don't think I could really pick out a scene, particularly apart from maybe Brad Pitt's demise in the in the closet. Uh, that's probably uh, and and the chair,
2: right? Uh, that, that's probably the only two scenes that will stay with me. <laughs> I, in
1: fact, I'm going to go build that chair after this recording.
2: <laughs> Although you're like really inept, a handyman, so it's going to look like a nightmare. <laughs> if anyone's ever seen, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia,
1: and is familiar with the Art Blaster 5000, I believe it's called, which is exactly the same premise but in a bike. Oh my! Yeah, Uh that's, and 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 a bigger implement may I add to
2: um so I've got a couple little notes I'll just mention at one point Clooney says we have all the time in the world where I was like intentional uh, I don't know I mean again who knows what
1: the Cohen brothers oh yeah I could actually for them I could genuinely see them just sort of coming up with that line
2: and being like I've never seen a James Bond film yeah exactly what who's Ian Fleming <laughs> random anecdote I remember when Transformers 3 Dark of the Moon opened and Francis McDormand is in that movie and myself and so many others wondered what it was like for Joel Cohen her husband to attend the premiere of Transformers 3 what is going through his mind watching that Michael Bay film
1: I, I don't think I can remember Transformers 3 nor am I sure I've ever seen it but what the hell was Francis McDormand doing in it
2: she was like the leader of the secret agency that had the
1: transformers don't tell me the secret agents in transformers films moving on (laughs) we're not covering those films i'm sorry
2: i can't go back no 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 and my other just note was the actor david rash who is the other CIA agent we have in the conversation scenes with jk simmons david rash is just one of those character actors i've seen pop up in so many things over the years people really don't know who he is but i think he's genuinely funny here and has a really good back and forth with jk simmons and he was in men in black 3 who, really yeah
1: he played agent x i have no memory of him in that so well he's more memorable here yeah um well i think that's all of our notes on burn after reading so i think before we finally burn this film we need to ask that question is it making the Knock List. Now, Matt, you're our guest. Uh, you get the first vote, but because you're our guest, I think Cam just quickly runs through what we're doing here with the Knock List.
2: Yes, the Knock List is our tortured acronym for Need to See Official Classics <laughs> for the Spy Hearts podcast, where every week after we've talked about a movie, we determine if it belongs on this list we're creating of kind of the all time great spy films. So, movies that have made it onto the list North by Northwest, Goldeneye, Goldfinger. Um, three days of the condor scott are there any comedies on there spy kids actually made it on spy kids one's
1: on there yeah like a
2: yeah no i think we've only had like
1: central intelligence which wasn't that funny um oh um our man flint made it on
2: oh yeah our man flint yep that's a
1: i suppose it's more of a spy spoof i would say than a straight comedy but go on
2: Yeah, so in certain cases, it's not necessarily like they have to be the five-star carved-in-stone classics, but it's like they're important representation for an aspect of the genre, which is how, for example, Spy Kids gets on, of what it's doing with the genre at that particular time. So yeah, that sort of sums up what the list is.
1: So I'll put the question to you, sir. Burn after reading, is it making the knock list?
0: What I want to say is I want to give the most Cohen's answer ever and say maybe, but I'm not going to do that. I <laughs> uh, <laughs> like just frustrate you with the answer. Do we just give it three maybes? <laughs> yeah, we all just shrug. Yeah. I, I'm going to say, talking about the film has made me, in, I, I enjoyed it. Talking about the film has made me appreciate it more than after just having watched it. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to say it is not going from, it's, I'm voting no for the knock list.
1: Okay, that's one no. It's all still to play for. Cam,
2: where do you stand? I am so, like, struggling with myself on this one because... It's a maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the Coens almost demand that everyone just give maybes, and, like, that's how they're satisfied. They walk away going, perfect, we did what we set out to do. People are conflicted about this movie and still, you know, chewing it over. I love the idea of having a Coen Brothers movie on the knock list because this would be the only one. They haven't done any other spy movies. Um, And I think it's doing like interesting things with spy tropes that I've never seen done anywhere else. Like a lot of the spy movies we do that are comedies tend to come at it from a pretty head on way, you know, like they're just kind of spoofing the conventions everyone knows. And I think this movie is trying to do some interesting things and commenting on the CIA in a way that I haven't really seen done before, especially in this way. So I'm going to go, I think, with a light yes. I actually think this would be a really interesting one.
1: Wow. This is one of those rare occurrences where I actually get a say when it comes to three people. Because usually I am voted out by this point.
2: That's why I cited the Roger Ebert um comparison earlier. I'm not comparing myself to Ebert in any way in terms of quality. But <laughs> it sounded um, like you were there. It did sound like I know. you were, Cam. <laughs> I sounded like an egomaniac. I sounded like a be- I belonged in this movie. Um mm. but it's more the sense like I just remember his mediocre reviews of like The Shining and then later on putting it in his all-time greatest films of all, you know, of all time and saying like I just I didn't get it and doing the same thing Godfather 2. I think maybe Silence of the Lambs maybe as well. Like there's been movies along the way that he was, you know, willing to say, hey, I just didn't get this movie at the time. And I kind of feel that way about this one now. And I don't know that I've run into that on anything else we've done on this podcast. And very few movies, sometimes you'll shift in percentage of enjoyment. Like I enjoyed it before, liked it more this time. But I haven't really had one where I've really flipped on it the way I have this movie. No, and it's been interesting to watch your um,
1: sort of a appreciation growing of the film. And and, and Matt's too, actually, to be fair. Um, I think, I mean, just to set it out, there's a yes and a no now, so I do get the the vote, which is nice. The power is in my hands. I think this film challenges the viewer, and I think if we go back to the core mission statement of the show, which is to find the best spy films ever made, I have to ask myself that question is this one of the best spy films ever made? Probably not yeah. in that sense. Yeah, and that's, the, and that's the problem I'm facing. But then I also look at, and, and Cam, I think you mentioned these films on purpose, which is in like Flint and Spy Kids, because we kind of put them on the, sh- on the list as like outliers that inform your viewing. And I, I wonder to myself, does Burn After Reading go in that kind of, that wing almost? Like, does it take up that mantle?
2: There is the argument, though you can look at both Spy Kids and Our Man Flint as somewhat trendsetters, whereas you could very much ask the question: Did Burn After Reading have any real influence?
0: <laughs> the tension's killing me here.
2: My God! Yeah, Scott stares into space. <laughs> I, I'm sure this will all be cut down in
1: the edit, and I'm just, I, I am just sitting here pondering what I do with this film because I, you know personally i think i got a lot from it i laugh i laugh when i watch this film and i've watched this film three times now and i have laughed at the same jokes every time it that proves to me that it's a successful film is it a successful spy film and that's where i'm crippled with anxiety much like george clooney is in this film um <laughs> no 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 i I I can't justify it as making the list of the best spy films ever made. If this was going to be a list of like if we ever expanded it and had a second level like a second tier uh <laughs> maybe like something that like, but I think Cam probably sealed this film's death certificate when he said a moment ago has this left an indelible mark on spy cinema. No. It just poked fun at it really well. And I don't think that means it is must-see. Right. So, there you go. Two no's, one yes. Burn After Reading is not making the not list. The trials and tribulations this film went through just there, just to see if it could get there, but it could not. Uh, Well, thank you for listening, folks. Matt, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's been it's been, it's been been loads of fun. Um, now, before you go, obviously we spoke about the the books you've got out at the moment at the beginning of the show, but um, where can people find more of your work? Is there a website we can point people to?
0: Well, you could go to mattglasby.com or you could see me at mattglasby on Twitter or at the Book of Horror if that particularly uh, floats your boat. But yeah, if you just look up my name, you'll find me because there's not too many of those kicking around.
1: Absolutely. And we'll uh, put links in the show notes below to all the books. People can just click below if they want to read more about that. And we'll be tagging you on social media as well so they can find you that way. So again, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Well, Cam, it looks like we have burned after reading. But uh, what are we talking about next week?
2: We are tackling our first ever anime film. (laughs) from burn after reading in the cohen brothers to an anime film and one that has a lot of name value i think out there it's going to be 1995's ghost in the shell
1: yeah this is a quite a special film to me this is a a, at my request it has got a spy element to it so i that's why i've included it Uh, i was a big fan of this one um when I was young, I'll save the story for next week. But yeah, I'm very excited to go back and revisit with you. And we've got a an expert on the genre coming in to help contextualize it. So it should be a very uh, interesting episode.
2: I'm looking forward to this one. It's definitely outside of sort of my comfort zone. Um, I've seen some anime films, not a ton, though, by any stretch. So I'm looking forward to digging into something I'm not particularly familiar with.
1: Yeah, it'll be it the first time that uh, you're an idiot like me.
2: That's right. That's right.
1: Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Ghost in the Shell from 1995 and join us next week. We have recently started up the Spy Podcast Network, and you can find out more about that at spypodcasts.com. Check out a whole range of really cool spy podcasts. And don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But... Until next week, listeners, remember, forewarned is forearmed.
2: Exploring the works of John le Carré, each episode of the Le Carré cast looks at a specific novel or an unexplored aspect of his life and work. Join us as we take a deep dive into the world of espionage, John le Carré has revealed. Search for Lacare Cast wherever you listen to podcasts or at LacareCast.com.